They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Podcast with your host Juan Ayala. Prepare to have your mind blown. Freaking Spider-Man came out of nowhere and was just doing flips and it was craziness, dude. He was doing like one-handed push-ups and everything, dude. Yeah, they got a, a lot of competition, you know. Like <laughs> they gotta, they gotta impress. <laughs> What's up with you, bro? Nah, not much, just uh, editing. Check this out. This is a program I was telling you about. Yeah, I actually downloaded it. I was trying it out, dude. I transcribed one of my solo episodes, but then I'm like, you know, what we had talked about, I'm like, man, this is a lot harder than I thought. In what way? What do you mean? Like, to make it... Because obviously when we do episodes, right, we're we're trying to portray some sort of idea. And my whole thing was, right, not throwing shit at anybody, but my whole thing was, like, if so-and-so could do it and just put random ideas together, I could do the same thing, but interconnect all those ideas. You know what I mean? Not just have, like, some random, here's this conspiracy, that's what this is about. Here's the other conspiracy, that's what that's about. And then here's this third conspiracy, that's what... So how does it all connect? You know what I mean? So I think right. I can, I can do saying, that. You're saying it's not as easy as just transcribe, print, there's my book. You, you still have to put it together in a cohesive way so someone reading it isn't like, why is there five conversations transcribed and put in a book? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hear that. I think, yeah, that's, I mean, and you can even hire somebody to edit for that, you know, like people who you know, aren't going to edit the contents. They're just going to make it more readable. Coherent. Yeah. 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 Cause I was looking at it and I transcribed one. I actually have it pulled up here. Yeah. I transcribed it 
and it's obviously not perfect, right? Because it's an AI. And I forgot what I was talking. I think I was talking about Saturn worship or something. And it's like an hour long episode. Does it tell you how many words are in it? Yeah. Yeah, it's on the. It's in a weird spot. It's you. It also tells it to you. Um, tells it to you when you're publishing it or exporting it. But it should say it on the side somewhere. Yeah, I mean, usually, like, uh, let's see. The average conversation is like anywhere, if, if it's like a two hour conversation, it's like anywhere from 20,000 to 50,000 words. Damn. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> I take out like at least 2,000 uh, ums and ahs from like a two hour conversation. Like when you, when you highlight all the filler words, it'll give you a count. It's usually like anywhere between 500 and 2,000 times that the word um is used in a average conversation. So this one is, says here 3,600. Oh, no, yeah, select all and it'll tell you. Because, dude, as I've gone on like podcasting, I've you know how it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a constant improvement always. And I've improved since I've started for the very first time when I'm conversing to not say, um, and not to see like, and you know, and all this stuff that people use in as filler words, I've really worked on that. And as time goes on, right, you'll, you'll get a lull here and there where you're like, uh, but I've worked on it a lot. This is 9,100 words, but that's including like the intro and all this stuff. And then obviously the outro, follow this, follow us on Instagram, follow me on Instagram at the, at the, the one on one <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yeah. The, the transcript is always going to say some wild shit. It's always going to have a misspelling or, um, hear you say something and you read it and you're like, huh, when were pickles talked about? And then you listen yeah. to it and they weren't. <laughs> so let's say that out of the 9,300, there is 7,000 usable words, right? Let's say a number. How big is that? Like how many, isn't the average book like, what, like 20,000 or something like that? 20,000 words because I have a couple friends that are authors and I they've told me and I forget every time they tell me I think we speak almost a whole book into <laughs> into the ether every time we do a podcast so damn when you put it that way dude it, it's crazy right yeah well like the way we you know like if this technology was available before the printing press, would people even spend as much time on books as they did? You know, like I think about that sometimes, like if the computer was invented somehow before the book, <laughs> but yeah, the average book is like 40,000 words. This says here. And that's how, cause these guys, bro, they, you like large fonts and everything and all this stuff and they drag it out. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, the larger the font, the longer the book. And they put quotes in there. They put pictures. So that takes up space as well. 
So yeah, it's all about giving someone the uh, appearance of a of a big book while at the same time putting the least amount of effort into it possible. <laughs> you not not because the authors are lazy, but because it's such a time uh strenuous process that they just yeah, they they're like, "Oh, well, you could put quotes, you can make your font bigger, you can, you know, it sounds like some kind of workaround, but it's just yeah, it's just the art of the making a book." And one of the things I didn't want to do either is because a lot of the things that I talk about, right, it's research that I've done throughout all, all this time. And it's essentially it's ideas of other people, right? Because that's what history is. It's just regurgitated information over and over and over again. Another thing I didn't want to do was like last night, bro, I was getting my mind blown. I was reading Manly P. Hall. I'll check this book out, write this down, The Occult Anatomy of Man, okay? And it's a short, it's like a little, you have it? Have you read it? <laughs> it's in the It's in the pile now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, what it is, is it's about 50 pages, 60 pages long. It's like, I guess it's called a brochure or a pamphlet because he, he wrote a lot of those. And what it is, it's the breakdown of, religion and what i kind of didn't like about it was that it kept attacking christianity right it kept attacking the the christian the christian doctrines and the ideas of christianity but in essence one of the things that stood out to me was you know jesus christ and his 12 disciples jesus becomes the sun the s-u-n and the 12 disciples the 12 zodiac signs right so it's got to do with the microcosm and macrocosm where the ancients, they understood that, right? What happens in the universe at a grander and bigger scale happens in the human body in the smaller scale. So if you were to understand the human inside of you, right? The, the actual human in your anatomy and everything inside of you, you would be able to then understand the secrets of the universe because it happens in the bigger macrocosm. And as above, so below. So it happens as well in within you, right? That's the whole thing about the ancients. Within, look within. You have uh, the secrets of the golden flower, right? Carl Jung, where, or the secret teachings of the, whatever the, the, the title is, with Kundalini, right? Where you're able to bring forth this power and this thing within you that is able to change your physical anatomy and able to change your eventually your the world around you right like uh, that's the law of attraction and there's a lot of things in that book where i'm like it's things that i've talked about before hello hey mira it's connecting hello how's it how's it going how you doing good just uh talking to juan here we do a show together um Juan, Mira, and I met last night on a, like a roundtable podcast. Hi. I invited her to uh, to come by and and you know get to know us, get to know the community. And Mira, I wanted to get you on with uh, Sam for a spiritual podcast, but also I don't you don't have your own podcast, right? It's just uh, the services you do, right, with Moon and Rune. Um, yes. Yeah, so there was a, there is a plan for the podcast in the long run, <laughs> but right now, uh, the focus is more so on expanding the business services. Um, so I do individual session services, but I also 
I'm coming from, uh, I experienced a broken system in the corporate world that's very devoid of spiritual awareness and understanding or concepts like alchemy, um, even within the context of business and why it's necessary for success. So that's something I'm moving into at this point also is basically providing those services to organizations and businesses to help change that system in a way that like creates more space for intuition um, that has more respect for sort of those more archetypally feminine energies in the business world and how they actually are what sustain you in a successful model um, by being guided by things like purpose um, and actually having a living document as to what your purpose or mission is um, that people that work for you can actually correlate to and connect with instead of just, you know, feeling like cogs in a wheel, basically. Mm. Oh, that's really neat. I, I avoid the modern workplace <laughs> by being in this field. So I'm kind of tapped out of that world at this point, but yeah, I think that would definitely bring some meaning to people's lives where they're not just treated like a number and a, what's it called a, a position in the company. Yeah. Yeah. I have a strong belief that we uh, incarnate in this lifetime to experience systems that aren't working so that we can be the ones to, return to them and evolve them instead of, uh, you know, just choosing to totally ignore them. Right. I, I had to go through my stage where I basically detached from it completely so I could have a new perspective on it. But then now I'm at a point where I want to return to it so that I can help it be what I know it can be for everyone and not uh, what it is. Cause it surely is not working. <laughs> right. Well, and this is why I want to have you on my show to talk about this that sounds interesting um but tell me more about what you do for folks like readings and whatnot because i want to i want to have you on with sam and i just want to know like how i can describe you to him and uh and if it's the right fit because he has other shows where it's less of a spiritual focus um uh, but what what do you do there so it's pretty individual to the person that I'm in session with, of course. Um, but the majority of the work that I do is focused around an idea that I have, I hold space uh, within myself. I'm sort of a, a half empty cup in the best way in that I have room for your consciousness or sentience to uh, be with me or share the space with me while I am in session with you. Um, and the subconscious is usually the part of yourself that oftentimes is talking to you all the time and trying to get you to listen to it, but that most people consciously um, sort of move away from or like step away from or define down or don't listen to in their own mind. And so I basically uh, create space to be a vessel for self to self in a way that it will be received um, more, you know, I don't necessarily always communicate that in session to folks because it can make them be like, oh, I'm not going to listen to myself. <laughs> um, but that that's basically the point of it is I create this space where I can give you back to you and have you listen to and hear the things that you need to say um, while I, as myself, as my own sentience and consciousness and kind of am shaping it from a place of wisdom to make it more receivable. Um, to the person or to change the way in which it's said to use the right metaphor to ask the right question to get that aha moment or connection um, from conscious self with the subconscious self 
Wonderful. Yeah, I, I think I need to book myself a second. <laughs> it sounds interesting. Well, for, I always do the first one for free because I just want people, and it's a full session. Um, I just want people to try it so that they can see the power of perception and the power of actually connecting with and feeling resonant with your own self and your own body versus trying to connect with and tune into frequencies that are exterior to you. Juan, this isn't uh, foreign to you. What do you think? You've heard of this kind of work before, right? Yeah, I have. And that's why I don't do mushrooms because they, they, they <laughs> show me everything that I don't want to know about myself. And I've tried to, I grew my own psilocybin one time and it changed my life that one day that I tried it by myself. And I know it's cliche, like, oh, it changed my life, but it really did because it, uh, perception is everything. It's how we all perceive everything. And interestingly enough, I was actually listening to a lecture about it was Carl Jung and something else. And they talk about that, right? That's what the whole shadow self is about and how when you look within and you're able to bring forth that shadow self, it, it will show you the secrets, right? Of who knows what the fuck, but the universe perhaps. And that's what all those guys were on about. Because Freud, right, he was in about uh, when Carl Jung started practicing his own thing. It was because in the lecture, they were pretty much saying that he was tired of talking to sick people because it eventually started to manifest within himself. And, you know, when you hang around certain people, it starts rubbing off on you. So he they didn't have. A, and again, this is this whole aspect is new to me. So that's why I was looking into it. But. Freud's whole thing didn't have a certain aspect for that that inner self, I guess, right? Where there can he be, was right? a rationalist reductionist mm -hmm. completely, um, and so it was very clinical. Always has been. It's been one of the guiding cornerstones for modern psychology that has been not the best cornerstone for foundation because how can you treat people that? on average, live a spiritual or ritualistic life. If you're like, you can't treat someone's mind completely from a rational perspective mm -hmm. when they're not an entirely rational being. Um, yeah. So that's part of why psychology, modern psychology really doesn't work for a lot of people. It's not integrative to the spiritual sense of self. Even if the modern psychologist uh, as, a, as a scientific endeavor is completely reductionist and rational, it leaves this huge space of lack of understanding from them and lack of connection for them with their client. 80% um, of the world, I think, believes in things that are outside of self or outside of our perception of the 3D reality. So you can't treat someone who believes in those things if yeah. you don't believe in those things Yeah, and it, the, the lecture I listened to was Young Maslow and the Mechanics of Meaning, and it's by Larry... Gary Lockman, and I think you should have him on the show, uh, Mark, and hit him up. He was he was just on uh, the Higher Side Chats and Aeon Bite. They oh. both released the episode in the same day, and I was like, that must <laughs> be a mistake. Uh, but I actually have Gary's book right next to me uh, about Holy Russia is the yeah. name of the Yeah, book Holy Russia. Mm -hmm. But he, he writes on many different subjects. Do you have a, a book you want to show us? I do. So you might appreciate this one. It's called uh, The Gnostic Young. And it is actually a book of uh, basically a bunch of work that he did that was never published mm -hmm. where he was vesseling 
a uh, Gnostic philosopher by the name of Basilides, who yeah. had come long before. And so there are very few people that know that Carl Jung actually had this experience mm -hmm. and that he considered himself a vessel for another entity. Yes. Um, but there's a lot of really fascinating information about in this book, also about old, um, old deities like Abraxas that used to be, um, you know, more commonplace, I guess. There, there's just a lot of really cool information in this, but it's this whole concept basically that uh, Carl got to a point where he realized that the 3D was not the only world and that we had to be open to the idea that you have to treat uh, a multitude of worlds or perceptions within each individual to actually get them to a place that is sustainably healthy and self-accepting. Yeah. Um, and that we're not so finite. Like that that whole micro-macro concept is that just as the entire universe is outside of you, it must also therefore be inside of you. What was I just telling you, Mark? <laughs> I was just telling Mark about uh, the 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 occult anatomy of man by Manly P. Hall, where yeah. the ancients understood that what happens in the grander scale of the universe happens within us. So if you understood man as, you know, the microcosm, if you understood them fully, you would be able to understand the universe as a whole because everything that happens in the universe happens within us. And I was just literally right. telling him that before you hopped on the call. So that's weird. And Carl Jung, the whole thing with the synchronicities, right? It's what you're saying that he understood even if, something may not right because coincidences like we have things that happen to us that are like oh that's weird he understood like hey it might not be connected but still you have to pay attention that's to an intuitive things. process of the subconscious mind mm -hmm. yeah it's it's the that is the most appropriate intuitive process of the subconscious mind is to see those synchronicities in a way that you may not be affirmed by them but that you have a choice point to say it doesn't matter whether or not i'm affirmed by them this is information for my soul self yeah. this connection this convergent point is important for me synchronistically through transcendent time versus um, or what i call convergent time so a lot of times it's also something that if you choose to pay attention to it you start to see the thematics of of time space uh within the 3d world that like at the same time every year maybe the same thing doesn't happen but at the core value of the experience the same thing happens so it might be nuanced, it might be different people that present it, it might be a different environment, but that the core value of what's occurring uh, within that experience is convergent for you uh, cyclically through time. And so synchronicity becomes this really important process to see that in a way that only you can see. Like there's no one else in the room that's gonna understand that. So you can't like turn to Mark and be like, Hey, Mark, did that make sense to you? Because it connected to me to this thing from like two years ago. Mark's going to be like, I don't fucking know, man. Yeah. <laughs> but that we have this human ego process that if we don't hear that affirmation, we decide that it is from a rational reductionist mindset, not uh, something of value or something that is true, basically, I think is the, is the deeper problem that unless we're affirmed by the exterior, we don't assign it a value to information as true. Um, without evidentiary process by another. That's what right. gnosis is, right? Like consent almost. Do what, Mark? Like our ideas require uh, society's consent. You know, like like people don't feel comfortable having ideas that society isn't uh, co-signing. 
Well, that, yeah, that's like God wasn't thing. sitting there at the beginning of creation going, should I make stars? Fuck, who's going to tell me I should make stars? Well, I, yeah. No, I won't make them. No one told me I should. I'm not going to make them. <laughs> <laughs> what are ideas even, right? They, they, they're just these things that pop on our head where it's like, that's what Plato talked about, the theory of forms, where they're just in this upper dimension and they're just fed to us from god knows what right and did you know that i i think it was carl young he had like some nag hammadi scriptures or like some ancient gnostic scriptures as well that he collected but he had like a, a, a this later on he donated it to a museum i believe and he had like some he was into that stuff which is crazy to me because that's what gnosis is like this sacred knowledge yep. to you that only you understand and again, Pythagoras talked about the Tetractus where those points are points in time and the intervals in between is that gnosis process, the, the journey which you go through and it's individual to each and every single one of us. And it's what you make of it, right? And you talk to people about this stuff and they're like, nah, that's that's too woo-woo. This is real shit. This is like real stuff that the ancients were talking about. And even modern people, that's what the metaphysics is that they're trying to connect the the physical and the metaphysical world together in some sort of coherent way, which they still don't understand the observer effect, right? If you, if you figure that out, you win a Nobel peace prize. So it's very fascinating. And I love all this. Well, stuff. they understand that it is reality, but they don't understand the process by which it, uh, by which it works, which is sort of the, the problem with the rationalist reductionist mindset is that unless it can understand how the system works, it wants to assign that, sort of connotation of it being woo or esoteric mm -hmm. um but like so the metaphor i ironically we've created a system that gives us a wonderful metaphor for how the subconscious and conscious mind works which is uh computational systems the ram drive which there's all sorts of some symbology even in that name as to why it would be attached to the subconscious but the ram drive in a computer is something whose job basically is to take extraneous or junk data and hold it uh, in place until it finds the right time frame and pattern and cooperation between that information to re-inject it back into the computational conscious system in a way that's usable for you. Um, but then basically this is also how the subconscious mind works. We retain all sorts of what we perceive as a 3D conscious individual ego as junk uh, or extraneous information but that the subconscious is there to hold on to it until it can have those convergent points where it's like, hey, remember when you thought that this information was useless? It does not seem to be the case anymore. We have found a convergent point where this data is no longer useless because all things that we experience must have a use. It just doesn't necessarily present itself in present moment. And so that's like our way of learning how to use consciousness in relationship with time as a medium of experience for self, instead of like assuming that we're, um, that we are just the, the conscious like ego individuation that's existing in and perceiving 3D reality. Boom, why aren't we recording this? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm recording bro, I thought it was just gonna be me and you so I I've been recording, so you've been recording. That's Feel right. Feel free to use. <laughs> <laughs> I I was thinking about doing something like that. Sorry to change subjects, but I was thinking about doing something like that where we record just like, just talking, just chilling, you know, whatever happens, like Alt Media United boardroom or something, because you know that's kind of the idea with 
why I'm doing this as my full-time job. Like I got to figure out how to make this a, an actual uh, full-time job. Cause right now it pays like a part-time job. But what I realized is helping others is how this business kind of works in a lot of ways, you know, like uh, helping you guys get in front of a new audience by putting you on a bigger show or, you know, connecting you with someone like Brandon Thomas, who then has a whole round table and is going live. And I don't know what it means uh, for you. If you're going to start a podcast, I'd love to help Mira, you know, like uh, hosting or whatever, help you figure that out. But yeah, I mean, I kind of just, I want to be able to uh, set you up for success. So what you just, this little conversation you just had is a perfect, uh, I don't know, example for me to then go and say, Oh, Sam, this is who we're having on zero. She knows this, that, and this. And now I'm pretty confident that you're not going to disappoint anybody. So, well, please introduce me as someone who knows that I know nothing, but that I am open to the wisdom and understanding of the subconscious that lives inside of me. I trust in the power of my subconscious mind a lot over my ego individuation conscious self. (laughs) Mm, Right. And that's probably why I need to book a, uh, a session because I, I bounce between both often without control. So it's, it's, so yeah. it's not, it's not a bad place to be. It's a practice point. So I would say even be careful. Like I work a lot with linguistics with people and the power of uh, word, not just spoken word, which is of course the most powerful form of word aside from written, written word, but then there's uh, internal word like that oftentimes we so even in an example of the English language, we exist in a language that actually is bolstering to the ego. It is an egocentric language. And so most of the belief systems we exist in and perceive because of the style and nature of that very language become more egocentric. It's difficult to uh, move away from ego inside of something like the English language where we assign blame or value or responsibility constantly just in the structure of language and the way English works. So the example I always give people is, um, let's say someone, you're at a house party and someone walks into a room and bumps into the vase uh, that's like in the room and knocks it over and breaks it. Everyone's going to say, so-and-so broke the vase. Whereas in uh, languages like Spanish, the more common way to refer to that as most literally translated is the vase broke. You see the difference even in that simple moment where the ego individuation and blame, especially, right? Like this is why we're such a shame-ridden society is because there's a constant attachment or identification of the ego to an experience or event in a way that becomes uh, so responsible and shame and fear-based that we have a difficult time walking away from it. Like it's very different if the language you grow up in is constantly just saying, this is an event that happened versus placing blame on an ego individuation in the event for making it responsible for it. Right. Yeah. Wow. I didn't, I didn't really even think about that, but it's funny, Juan, you're bilingual. Do you feel like that's true based on your life experience? Would you, do you notice that on a, in a subtle way? Yeah, and a little bit. And it's, it's what I've always talked about too, where we've, in the, especially in the English language where we've, taking, where we've taken all these words from other languages 
and we've added characters that never existed into the alphabet and it's almost to i look at it from a different point of view where it's almost like demystify the human demystify us as a human species right to maybe perhaps because i'm all about the whole god within type of thing and emanationism right what you emanate is the reality you create which that's what the emanationists were about about the the one and not so much that god created the universe but that he emanated from the center and it just so happened to be right uh and that's what what i'm like i talk about that a lot like if you look at welsh mythology it's so mystical and and great and all this stuff and they were there i think the world was like harry potter back then where you could speak things into existence and just make it happen and, and you see it in all the ancient scriptures but i speak spanish my wife's brazilian and she speaks portuguese and yeah that is the difficulty right because i told you i wanted to start a podcast in spanish a conspiracy podcast in spanish but i wasn't able i'm not able to con you know to bring forth these ideas unless i do like spanish in the same way yeah because you yeah, can't yeah, there's yeah. just no Isn't way that fascinating well my my, my question when you say that is like do you and this is for both of you do you think that then that would maybe mean that english language facilitates conspiratorial thinking on a psychological a thousand percent <laughs> wow a thousand percent <laughs> why because it also conspiratorial language also places blame or responsibility outside of self which is more comfortable for us because we have become so ego individuated um, this presented for our generation with a majority of kids who grew up under highly narcissistic parents uh, like our generation's greatest trauma is that many of us were um, born into uh, families that had a strong sense of maternal trauma and that we ended up with mothers who basically had NPD or narcissistic personality syndrome that made it so we then were disconnected from that maternal sense of source or that feminine archetypal energy of source. Uh, it's also something that I've referred to archetypally as Athena syndrome. You know, Athena was the god who was born purely from her father's own mind, just total rationalist, reductionist, like devoid of a sense of that archetypal feminine. Um, but our language has done a lot to vilify that anyway because of our obsession with Orthodox scripture. I'm trying. That's a, that's a whole another problem is the is the transliteration of things like Orthodox scripture over time into the English English language in a way that became very egofied. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think I'm gonna have to have you on my show because <laughs> I I'm trying to find the quote by Alan Watts where he says the ego doesn't exist, but I'm not able to find it. If he even said that. Well, I got to point out this one. I had never heard of emanationism until you just said that. And I had to like Google it. Cause I'm like, is he just putting two words no. together? <laughs> That's no. what Plato was, bro. He, there were emanationists. Yeah. Well, and I'm also seeing that this guy who I've read a couple of his books, Samuel on Weir, Samuel on Weir, his, his actual name is Victor Manuel Rodriguez. I don't know where Samuel Weir comes from, but, uh, yeah, but he's like name. a Gnostic author and uh and he talks about emanationism that's legit yeah this is very this is very much in line though why i'm kind of pointing it out with what we're talking about like the the mindset that a lot of us think is a reaction is actually a part of the whole it's emanating from the whole you know like the the solution comes with the problem almost 
Not that conspiratorial yeah. thinking is a solution, but <laughs> every cause has an effect well, and every effect has a cause. So it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. Let me pull something up. I have something here. Yes. And so even to play in, back into Jung, who is um, an expression of source I connect with often because he was, you know, people like Jung and Tesla had a, uh, a deeper understanding of the macro synchronicity, synchronicities that were present. Um, same thing with Plato and, and the whole philosopher movement, which is that they really saw these diving suits that we exist in um, <laughs> as, you know, spaces for any expression of spirit, not that. necessarily our ego individuation um, expression of spirit. I love and that. so you look at someone like Young who vesseled Basilitis, well, you have to be willing to put your ego completely aside to let someone else, I mean, it's literally a form of possession. I call it constructive possession. But, you know, in, in most religious circles, the concept of possession even is vilified. And so the sense of having something like higher self possess you becomes difficult for the average person because it feels like their ego is losing control instead right. of that they're letting their most, um, the most efficient or effective form of self be present in that present moment. I love that. I think that's... So, yeah, yeah, Carl... What did Carl say? Oh, it's um, that anything that you dislike about another or that you take issue with in another is a reflection for you to learn from about a characteristic within self that you are basically ego blind to, like right. that you have an ego cognitive dissonance to. So that synchronicity becomes something that helps you see the correlations between the core values of behaviors or experiences versus like, it's not exactly the same thing that I do. And so therefore I have like nothing to learn from it. Right. Um, the, like the, I would say even within the conspiracy theorists today, that there are these large groups of populists who are still doing the same thing that the other side is doing, which is you have to think my way or you're less evolved or like you're the bad guy or like, it's still, there's this practice of transcending duality mindset that's happening at a natural selection level. And people are either getting it or not getting it. Both ways are fine, but that's just, you know, that that's sort of this, um, it's like natural selection has been hit into overdrive in the last two and a half years, as far as not so much the natural selection process of physical, um, natural law in like evolutionary process darwinian process that we understand but in the spiritual process um that there's this like it's having to catch up because it's been removed or not a part of the process for us for such a extended period of time can I, can I say something um the what what we're talking about right the back to the emanationism the hindu trinity that's where the christians and not not bashing anybody for their religion but that's where the christians got the trinity from right i mean you had the council of nicaea that they were trying to they had two different factions fighting with each other and they wanted peace so they came together and they agreed on what was canonical and what was not canonical and that therefore that that's where the holy roman empire came forth and that's how we got what we have now uh, the hindu trinity right brahma vishnu and shiva are three different persons but are the three aspects of the one so the again the one in the center 
And, yeah, of self. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, and then they are supposed to be the creator, preserver, and destroyer of the universe. So this God is one. They're one, but you only refer to the one how you see fit, right? So whatever, right, whatever term you want to use, you're still using the same one. And they're talking about how they manifest, right? They didn't create. They were, instead, the Hindu gods are mere manifestations of one and personal unknowable God who is called Brahma and other names. So there is like this, right, the divine architecture, which uh, he's up there, but then he's got these avatars that they're the ones that run reality. And that's that's like the whole thing with Plato and what they talked about. And every emanation was a different reality, I guess, a different dimension. That's what the Gnostics talked about with every celestial body's orbit was a different dimension, but they related every celestial body to a different demon of some sort of feeling, right? Gluttony, greed, every, all these things that we experienced to the Gnostics, they were demons. And Abraxas had, you know, if you break that down into Gematria, it's 365, and where they talk about the 365 degrees of the horizon. And he also had 365 different demons, right? He had like a posse of demons, and that's what the Cathars so, and all those guys are about. Let, let's talk about et etymolo etymological roots for a second. Because um, that's a huge one for me that really shapes a lot of people's belief systems. So one, that the word sin was actually the original name for the emanation of the moon or the archetypal feminine. So how interesting, how incredibly vilified it's been in a certain form of scripture. Um, and that most of the sins are actually just human behaviors or experience models that have shame and guilt attached to them, that shame and guilt are actually the problem within that model more so than it is the experience or the action. It's the judgment of self for that action. So lust, for example, is something where sexuality becomes uh, an action or experience that we've attached a lot of shame and guilt to, that we judge ourselves for, that we can't um, accept within ourselves as a holy or sacred experience. Um, greed becomes something where basically our fear of a lack of abundance uh, promotes an ideology that we need to hoard resources. So the world is actually quite greedy because of that scarcity mindset or the shame or fear patterns that's attached to even that, um, even the sins, for example. But that you also have to look at it from the perspective that, that if you are to exercise the sin, you are thereby also uh, inherently exercising a virtue that virtue and sin must exist in, uh, that there's a middle ground for them, but th that they're two ends of the same spectrum. Just like if you get rid of fear, you're also getting rid of courage because you, you wouldn't need anything to be courageous for if there's nothing for you to be <laughs> fearfully uncomfortable about. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff like that too. Like, you know, you can't only have love, right? If you have love, then you must also have war as a part of that spectrum of experience. The middle ground being peace, basically, um, that that's like sort of the epicenter of where those two emanations of experience uh, expressed outwardly within the dualistic pattern that we are living in in the 3D. Like everything about the 3D is very much based in duality and us understanding the paradox and accepting the full spectrum, even when we, even when our ego doesn't want to, because it wants us to pick a side so that we can be the hero or the or the good guy versus just the observer of experience. Yeah, it's 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 Joseph Campbell, right? The hero with a thousand faces, right? We're always faced with different things, and, and right. I I look at life 
and this world as a big game of Dungeons and Dragons, where you're constantly having to pick between the good and the evil. You have all these different archetypes within that game and these different personalities, right? And that's what I think this is all. This is all. And I don't know if it was. Was it Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche, where he talked about how he was trying to break down? Th- he was like that kid in, in class that always wanted to be right. And whatever you, whenever you said something, he always wanted to one up you. And one of the things he attacked Rene Descartes for was, I think, therefore I am. He comes back and he goes, well, if you didn't understand yourself in the first place, who the fuck is I? And it's like, uh, I don't, I don't know. Right. And. I don't know if it was that lecture because I listened to a whole bunch of different things. If it was that lecture or another one where they talked about how we have to find meaning in, in everything. It might have been the Carl Jung one where if it rains, it just means it's raining. It doesn't necessarily have to mean anything. But for some people, sometimes they have to find I have to listen back on it. But it had a, something to do with like the mystical aspect of it all. And, and I have to look back in. But. Yeah, I think basically that's the that's the choice point in having that intuitive process of like that seeing the perfection of the system that if it rains and it has a synchronicity to me that is intuitive that I accept that and see it for myself so that I can learn and grow that language versus thinking again that I have to like, you know, maybe that rain means something else to the person next to me. But that's just as important, that meaning or symbology that came to them, that intuitive connection and synchronistic process that came to them as it is to me. That's the perfection in the system of the projection and the reflection. But that we constantly want to look for the validation is is basically where the problem comes in. It's magical, right? When he was talking about the peaks and the valleys, I think that was Marlowe where, where these moments when, right, Mark, when we have a synchronicity that we text each other, I'm like, it feels so magical, dude. Like I'm texting. I'm like, dude, you saw this comment that I saw on YouTube about that thing that we talked about when it all connects. It was, it was the weirdest was when I was literally <laughs> sending you a text message. And before I like, as I had sent you were like, were on that same thought. We weren't talking that day. Like I hadn't texted you before, but I was about to text you and say like, Hey, let's do, you know, a show tonight. And before I like even hit send, boom, there was a message from you saying like, yo, we're doing a show tonight. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. There, yeah that, see, that synchronicity occurs in the subconscious. Like that's where you guys are aligned is the epicenter in, in the subconscious, but it presents itself to the conscious mind in a way where you guys had that like oh, manifestation. Shit. It's a manifestation yes. of that subconscious. And that's what it's always in the background working is that, you know, let me take it. Cause one, I feel like, you know, you're in a different place in life than me. My mind goes in when we're talking in this realm, like, and you're in a different part of the world too, where I live with the traffic. I'm like a nutcase sometimes. And when you said that thing about the ego, uh, like we're, we get upset about what we have blind spots about, you know, it, when I'm driving on the road and someone else is a bad driver, like this is, I don't know, maybe this sounds like cliche or something, but I feel like I think about this a lot because I drive a lot and I just, I wonder what that is. Cause there'll be days where I'm in the flow state and everything will just flow. Like even yesterday I was on the phone with somebody, I was in the flow state, somebody in front of me was like on the, like, 
there's only one lane, but they're like coasting on the edge of the road. Like it's two lanes. And then the person in front of me, like literally hits their brakes to take a left turn. And I just floated in between the two cars and got around them without getting hit by that one that was like on the side. And I just thought to myself, like, Holy shit. What was that? You know, like a blink of the eye, like it will just be like flow state, but then there'll be other times where like somebody will just completely derail my energy because of the way they're driving. And it's, you know, a lot of people are very like me, 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 me on the road, especially where I live, you know, it's very metropolitan uh, or at least close to big cities. So people drive crazy and (laughs) I'm just trying to live my life peacefully. And that always stirs me up. So I'm like, what, what do I need to do differently? on the road to be in that flow state more often. So I don't think it took you out of flow state. I think it was expressing the importance of flow state to you. Like, can you imagine if you hadn't been in flow state when you hit that chaos energy? Mm, right. Flow state is what makes chaos energy feel like clay to be molded or like something magical, right? Like you had this moment where it was like, whoa, I feel like I was fucking Neo in the Matrix, basically (laughs) with those cars. Whereas if you hadn't been in flow state, maybe it wouldn't have happened that way for you. Um, It's sort of another way to look at it. But the other thing I've come to realize too, is that oftentimes those situations are just preventing, um, presenting a fuel source for us. So like, and mostly it's based in a sense of what we come to learn, um, like how what fuel source we learn to use growing up, which for most of us is usually anger um, in, in a weird sense, like not necessarily like wrath where you're like, ra- you know, totally raging hard on everything, but in a sense where when, when someone puts that fire in you, because anger is elementally like a fire, it's a fuel source for us, we have this choice point to either allow that fuel to be spent on time, energy, and attention thinking about how offended our ego was by that person, or saying, thank you for the chaotic fuel source uh, universe, I'm going to utilize this as I see fit, which is not on the time, energy, and attention of this other individuation that was just a delivery mechanism for this fuel for me. See, and this is, this is, I think this is a great explanation for or what I'm going through in a way, because I used to be uh, using that ether fuel elemental fire in martial arts all the time. And since the pandemic, I don't use, you know, or pandemic, I should say, I don't, I don't go to martial arts classes. I don't train, I don't spar. So I feel like all that energy that used to have an output doesn't, you know, in like more of a, like a wrath kind of way, you know, cause that's, yeah. Kind of- you know, I don't try to be violent. It's not a violent thing in my mind, but to maybe an outside observer, martial arts can be violent. There's definitely that like release of energy, but now that there isn't that anymore, yeah, I find myself getting to that place where I'm like really mad and I shouldn't be. So thank you. Cause that is a good reminder to be like, this is just fuel. Like I don't need to beat that person up who just cut me off like I just I just need to take a breath and and let that fuel bleed into what matters like doing this podcast and living my life constructively so yeah yeah or or going on a run or like whatever whatever your intuitive process gets to you with with the anger of like how you can best utilize it but it's that introspective rapport with self where you basically go 
wow, this is awesome tool that I just got to deliver. Um, let's think about like where we best want to use it or what's going to make me feel best in the way that I use it today. Um, you know, and sometimes the answer is childish. That's okay too. A lot of us, uh, you know, have inner child responses that we are like, I'm too adult for this. And inner child never gets to express itself. Uh, anger is actually one of the best places um, to make space for the inner child because anger is one of the first emotions we're not allowed to not allowed to have usually at a very young age because of how inconvenient it is to our parents or to teachers or you know whatever. So anger is actually a great fuel source for inner child work too. Yeah. <laughs> you saw the dog just. So <laughs> I was like, no, hang out. So rude. So, so I, rude. I, I wanted to add and not to get too Freemason, Mason, you know. Uh, but what you're talking, we're talking about experiences, right? And these experiences that unlock yes. these other higher things for us. I have been using the an, the story or the analogy of the alchemist in yet. his cave, right? And and the alchemist is is constantly looking for the the creation of the philosopher's stone. The philosopher's stone being, this is the true stone of the philosopher, which gives him power over all created things. The stone is himself. The experiences of his evolution have cut and polished the rough stone until in the initiative reflects the light of creation from a thousand different facets. And then one of the things that really stood out, and I don't know if it was because I was super fucking high when I was reading this, but one of the the lines, and I literally I was like. Oh, and it was like two in the morning and I'm like reading this this book it goes experiences are the chemicals of life which the philosopher is experimenting with nature is the great book whose secrets he seeks to understand through her own wondrous symbolism and then he you know they talk about the flame his own spiritual flame is the lamp by which he reads and without this the printed pages mean nothing to him so this lamp right this flame that that are, is within us is what illuminates right and some of us are put in here to illuminate the path for others and vice versa. Some people are here to cast those shadows on others, right? Because again, we're projection, right? Is it Carl Jung or was it Freud about the projections? It was Carl Jung, wasn't it? The projections of these things that we do and put onto people. And I've been using that analogy a lot because whenever I'm at night in my room and my deep in my studies, I'm like, I'm the philosopher. You know, I'm talking about, I'm like, I'm the fucking alchemist. I'm, I'm, I'm here, right? Put it because podcasting, that's what it is for me. It's, it's therapy where I'm able to unload this information and talk to interesting people. And like, I cr I've cried on podcasts cause it's gotten like, cause again, it brings out this stuff yes. in me where it's, 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 uh, you know, it's a visceral isn't experience. A paradoxically power isn't it a paradoxically powerful moment? It is. It's amazing. That's what I love about it. That's why I keep <laughs> doing it. But like the male ego programming of the Western uh, civilization is like, don't cry. You, yeah. And Juan, then the second you do it, you're like, damn, I feel really empowered right now. Yeah. Juan yeah. cries on his podcast and then immediately sends a message to Chris and I like, yo, I just cried on my podcast. It feels great. I hadn't cried in years, yes. bro. I hadn't cried in years. Exactly. And then he was talking oh, to me and I cried. So it was like this big revelation for me. I'm like, it's okay to let it out. Sometimes. I hadn't cried in like four years, bro. I don't fucking cry. You know, I'm, I was raised Pentecostal Christian in like the traditional household i was raised by my grandparents so traditional household you don't you never see the man cry he's the head of the household so here i am the only time i cried before that was when my son was born my firstborn son after that i hadn't fucking cried oh you know no i'm, I'm like i cried when my dad was about to die my dad had died four times and i was crying because my dad was dying so that's the only time and that was yeah that was like two and a half years ago so 
that's the only time I had cried. And then this dude, we started talking about being a parent and all this stuff and like the father figure in the family, how important that is. Right. And it just made, I was, I guess I was feeling some type of way that day. And as soon as I got off the podcast, I texted these guys. I'm like, Hey guys, I, I, I just cried. And they were like, I, I forgot what the fuck you guys said to me. <laughs> so this kind of plays into this whole concept too, that the Eastern traditions are actually really good at, which is the understanding that consciousness at a core level, even within biological form is androgynous, mm-hmm. that you have both man and woman inside of you as a conscious transcendent entity. And that here's this moment where you got to learn that having the head of the household be the clever man isn't always as good as letting your wise woman express through you and make space for that. Um, but again, this is something that, you know, even even the, the programming for the male ego in the West is like, if you tell a man that he has feminine qualities, it's immediately a, a, a degradation mm-hmm. instead of them accepting it as something that actually makes them more whole and better, yes. um, you know, not as much so for women like the opposite effect has kind of happened which is that the more masculine you become the more affirmed you become and the more you shut down that wise woman and that is what i experienced when i worked for uh the government basically is i was like holy shit i'm having to kill the feminine energy in myself to be successful that's not the like that is not the change i want to be for the world basically (laughs) i want i want workforces and workspaces and organizational spaces where that wise woman energy is actually respected and revered within each individual and there's space made for it instead of the like i have to be the the clever man um rumi has a quote about uh i i was clever yesterday but i'm wise today uh being like the cornerstone of of where you should be as a guiding point so Notice too, when you make space for that wise woman, how many of these intuitive uh, synchronistic processes start to unfold for you in a way that the conscious rational man can actually have like a stronger appreciation for them too. Yeah. It grounded me. It brought me down, right? Like it, it, I felt more grounded after that. And then right as time goes on, then you kind of, I feel like I'm in the space right now where I kind of feel like I'm lifting up again and I need to be grounded down again. So, but that's just, Again, I'm in my studies. I'm trying to process all this information. So I don't know if that's got to do with it, but this is why I do podcasting because I think it's fucking great. And, and I can just let these ideas out and talk to interesting people who are also on the same frequency as me. Cause that's also important. You can't just talk to this about, about this stuff with anyone. Cause they're not, you know, it's falling upon deaf ears. And, but when you actually have people who you can converse with and they understand and they can comprehend and, and, and they go back and forth with you then that's a little bit different and it, it kind of right we talked about affirming thoughts and but it kind of does affirm it right it, even though if that's you can see that in both ways you know creation uh, when you start to see and perceive synchronicity or really live live and breathe the like divine make space for the divine feminine archetype that makes more space for the divine masculine archetype it becomes a constant conversation with creation between your subconscious conscious and the materia in front of you basically you're like our i feel like our purpose kind of here in how we transcend is to almost map the car the cognitive architecture that exists between the conscious the subconscious and the like material existence along with the imaginative like the imaginative process so to give kind of example of how that works um 
you know, the irony is that most people would not want to do it. But even in the situation where someone cuts you off with the car, taking a pause and asking yourself, in what way can I um, wisely take responsibility for how this came to be? Like, so basically saying, okay, well, I, as I was driving, I was thinking to myself, man, this is just too good to be true. Something, something's going to happen. Yeah. And then when it happens, taking that moment to introspect and say, wow, I can take responsibility for the thought that conceived this into my conscious 3D reality. Mm -hmm. But it also is providing me with a fuel source and I need that, so I'll take it. Like yeah. that's sort of the really core, deeper root of the alchemical process as, as self versus um, identity existing and perceiving uh, what we're all sort of learning how to experience and, and use as a medium for experience. Yeah. Those, those experiences are those facets in that philosopher's stone. And, and depending on how many facets you have is what you emanate outwards. Right. And you said identity, the, the for the Pythagoreans identity was the monad, the one, and from the one stems everything else. And uh, the monad is the identity and things identifying themselves. Like that's what they were all about. Right. And I think it's very, I'm very synchronistic. And as I go down in my, my research, I start to, that's what I was telling. That's what me and Mark had been talking about the other day about connecting different ideas and connecting all these different things and condensing it into a coherent idea. So, you know, we've been talking about writing books and portraying different things. And I think being able to, I think that's one of my fortes where I'm able to connect so many different ideas even though it may all be the same thing, because that's what history is. It's just regurgitated information and just reflections and and things that are just rewritten, right, in different ways. I think that's one of my forces where I'm able to connect a lot of different things into, like, one. Like, oh, this is what these people meant. And I've had people talk to me about things of, like, how I mentioned earlier, emanationism. Like, that's a real thing. But how many people know about that? It's like, well, that sounds interesting. But, it's completely you know. macro view because it's all you're seeing at that point is our, the existing fractal archetypal behavior patterns mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At, in their physical form, in their physical expression, but that nonetheless, that it is basically just that we're the flute and spirit is the wind which makes the song, basically. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's very poetic. <laughs> I, I took that from someone else, but I find it to be a very true, uh, true metaphor. Metaphors are one of, metaphors and allegory and analogy are one of the most beautiful ways we can have intuitive expression of spirit in a way that becomes personal to each individual that we interact with, um, which again is like the, it's the philosopher mindset, basically what you're talking about. Um, but the, so here's another metaphor I'll give you, which a lot of times we don't think of, which is let's say, let's equate ourselves to a pearl or a gem or a stone, right? So everyone gets the stone and it's a little rough and we know that there's a, a beautiful um, gem inside of it, but that it is going to require intentionally placed abrasive forces upon it to shape it into what it is asking to be. So in the context of ask and you shall receive, let's say you are hoping to mold yourself into this new form of self. You're hoping to evolve into this new form of self. What is going to be required for that is some abrasive or seemingly chaotic forces 
that you have choice points with to be intentional about where you can say, okay, this is the sandpaper to my pearl. I am going to be the one who moves the pearl against the abrasive experience in a way that gets me the luster I want versus just sitting there as the pearl, letting the sandpaper just like grind and grind and grind and grind away. That if the sandpaper or the abrasion comes into your reality or experience, you have to make the choice as the secondary molding hand to move and guide the stone or the gem or the pearl in a way which gets you the luster or the shape that you want. Um, the same thing can be said about clay, right? You know, if we're given clay, there has to be a molding force that occurs. There has to be some level of what we would perceive as abrasion or control to help us instigate and move into that thing that we're asking for it to be. Um, but that most people look at an abrasion and go, why is this happening to me? Well, because you asked for it, you wanted to evolve. And so the universe had to present situations or experiences for you that you push up against in a very intentional way so that you can shape and mold into that next thing for yourself. Yeah. And to, to add on to what you're saying, right, these allegories and these metaphors, we have the the story of King Arthur, right? And the, the sword and the stone and the anvil, whichever, right? That's that that brought forth the call to action to be to make right merlin is the wisdom that's guiding these knights to come out and without that certain situation king arthur wouldn't have come forth right and 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 was to to become his better self and be the king of the kings and all this stuff and also it's interesting that we're talking about stories i'm trying to find where i read it last night where <laughs> the story of santa claus coming down the chimney it's got to do something with like the 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 ideas and transcending right the you have jacob's ladder connecting heaven and earth and it's got to do with freemasonry and stuff like that but this this story of a fat man coming in through the top of a chimney it's like the knowledge coming from the top in through the you know the chimney being the spinal column of of man and you know all these ideas and everything else but yeah, it's interesting you brought that up because I was, oh, here we go, probably giving rise. Uh, clairvoyant fact that the spirit not only leaves, but also enters their body through the crown of the head, probably giving rise to the story of Santa Claus and his chimney. So again, it's got to do with the spirit. But these are stories that we tell our children and they believe, right? But there's deeper symbolic meaning behind them. And if you're not right. open to that or have the perception to understand that, you're just like, oh, he's coming down a chimney. Eh? Well, it's got a deeper meaning you than that. <laughs> One of my most favorite spiritual uh, stories or, or scriptures, if you could, if you're utilizing it in the same way, is the story of Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. um, there is all sorts of archetypal and emanatory information for the inward journey um, in that story. And it's, uh, it's definitely a reimagination of the same sort of patternistic behaviors that were present in the, Cre in the Christos story. Um, so Harry Potter, again, is, uh, is a new version or new, um, more nuanced space for the Christos story, basically. There's a bunch of different versions of them that have happened through time space. Um, Joan of Arc is another one, and there are loads of women who existed as Christ throughout time and history that Oof. were never really given the title. <laughs> um, and the irony being that Christ is actually just a title. Yes, um, yes. Christ means anointed one. It doesn't necessarily, it wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth who was given the title of Christ as an anointed divine being, but that it wasn't secular to 
Christ, basically. Yeah, it was I've I've literally said that where the Gnostics believe that Christ, the Spirit of Christ, possessed Jesus in the baptism, and that's why the 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 forgot the name of them, but there's there's a cult that follows John the Baptist as being the true Messiah. The Mandaeans, uh, I believe is what they're called, and they use the baptism as this sacred thing because they understood that when Jesus, the man, was baptized, and that's why they say Christ consciousness, right? Christ right. consciousness, because it, it is a title, and is it is this divine thing that comes down from God knows, or God, whoever God is, knows when comes down and possesses this this person, and they're able to do all these crazy things then that's why you see all these different figures all throughout history buddha vishnu krishna all these people even quetzalcoatl right like all these people who are able to do all these crazy quote-unquote miracles or spiritual things or even black magic if you will or whatever it was it's magic that's why they're able to do that through this higher thing that comes down the chimney if you will in from the crown chakra and that's why you see the pharaoh with the snake over their their third eye the frontal sinus and they say that's where your where your where your soul is and i was also reading last night that the reason why that kids have a certain clairvoyance right until the age of seven and i've seen this myself with my son who just turned four yesterday he right they look at things and you go what the fuck is he looking at and he starts talking you've heard him talk in his room and i'm like who's he talking to right and they say that the something in the brain where when the hyperborea the hyper hyperborea right where the giants and all this stuff were at, when that fell with the development of the two eyes this organ this perceptive organ that was there was like an antenna if you will at the age of seven the skull like kind of closes in on that and that's why they lose that perceptive power and that's why we all lose that perceptive power but we know that in anatomy the body doesn't conserve useless organs right they get smaller and smaller and smaller but there's a reason why we have a, a pineal gland that's still there right there's a, there's a thing behind that right the pine cone that's the whole thing uh where it's something that we don't know how or what it's there for or like the appendix we don't know why it's there but it's just there it just hangs out but again the body doesn't preserve useless things within itself it ho it, it preserves the things that matter and over time, some things get bigger, right, with evolution and all this stuff. But again, that's the macrocosm and microcosm where the macro, the universe is constantly evolving and changing and becoming a different thing. How in the micro, we're doing the same thing. We're all, we are the alchemists, tubes and flasks and all that. That's our organs. You know what I mean? Those are all our organs. We're this mad scientist laboratory within ourselves that creates the Philosopher's Stone, which we are the philosopher philosopher so, so yeah basically know. you're just a re, you're a receptacle mm -hmm. you're a vessel for spirit you're an avatar for it like so i don't know how many people have uh watched the cartoon the animated series avatar but even when you look oh, at yeah. um there are a lot of stories like that where the messiah is someone who's the avatar for expression of spirit they mm -hmm. have to have a space where they're totally devoid of ego where they accept that they are just a vessel for this greater thing but that again there's like this this ego dissonance that we have toward the idea of that um that the reason that the messiah is the messiah 
is basically because they have accepted that this is something for source to use as it sees fit in the present moment from an intuitive place and that our ego is the only thing that ever goes eh, don't do that don't say that don't you know don't talk to that person don't make that left like whatever it is that overrides the intuitive process that would be pure expression of source that creates that sort of christ consciousness like to me that's what christ consciousness is and it is an exception like this acceptance that you are everything and that by holding space for that outside of ego you become a shapeshifter in a in the best way <laughs> because the best version of self-source presents itself intuitively in the moment and so i'm trying to i'm trying to the name of it but there were a lot of celtic societies and druidic societies that had a reverence for skulls that had a uh, a hole in the middle of it mm -hmm. and they've never figured out whether that was something that was put into the skull or if that was a a natural um thing that occurred during the human biological process where basically there was a deterioration of um, that's why the, the space Hindus, above the pineal gland they put that dot in that area of the and that's why the egyptian pharaohs had the cobra the snake right the serpent it's got to do with with the lotus right and kundalini where it you know it comes down the it represents the right the the, the budding rod right where where it comes out it's again i'm talking about freemason shit which i don't mean to because i've been in this little freemason symbology because reading manly p hall because he was a freemason and he, he talked about them a lot but yeah all this stuff is symbolic for something else but you're absolutely right where that that is a real thing where uh, there it's like an antenna where we're this antenna and you mentioned nikola tesla early earlier i'm fascinated by him as one i think he understood uh, these things on a deeper level and, and these all these people that we've talked about like they're people who are shunned from society they're exiled because they have these other thought forms and these other things that they try to bring into the world and they're stopped by these archons or other forces at work to make sure that they don't get their message out because i i do think that it is they're trying to move past that humanism movement where we are our own right the divine spark we have the divine spark this is what they talked about and I think that with the powers that be nowadays, I think they're trying to take away identity, right? The monad from people. You have people who are, again, not bashing anybody, but you have people who think that they're other things, that they're really not. You know what I mean? But again, it's between those two points that are fact and truth, the intervals change for everybody else. And at the end of the day, the truth and the fact will always be there in that point. The only thing that changes is that interval. So you have these people who are so confused within themselves of what they are, or who they are, or how they identify or whatever, but again, again, not, you can believe whatever you want, but at the end of the day, some people are going to have to accept facts and I'm not trying to bash anybody for anything, but I'm just looking at it from a, you know, from a symbolism point of view, if you will, right. From a deeper meaning. Uh, so, but yeah. So I mean, what would you say is factoidal in that sense is the collective truth? So in the sense that I'm saying it, which again, I don't want to offend anybody, but for example, like being a man or a woman, like either there's male or female type of thing. You know what I mean? Like there's anatomy is anatomy. And, but again, they've the, 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 the transhumanistic movement and all this stuff is trying to take away, I guess, identity from people. Cause some people don't even identify as anything. You know what I mean? 
And I don't know if Do you think spirits or self ego identifies as bi as biological form? No, they're androgynous. Versus androgynous form? They're androgynous. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're both. But from an anatomical point of view, it's like, you know, a thousand years from now, if somebody was something that they claim to be, they're going to be like, this was the skull of a man. You know what I mean? Like, and again, I don't know if that's society molding and being able to, to put that forth, but. So which do you think conceives the other first? The thought of what you are or the material that you are existing in? Yeah, the, so the if, through the con if through the evolutionary process of the conception of thought that you are androgynous, you can neuroplastic neuroplasticically change your human form. Yes, that's slowly, Kundalini, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. But like, let's say that that's your most comfortable state of expression of sources to be able to be androgynous and that by accepting that at a conceptious level here you start to create that evolutionary process for the biological form mm. to be more possible again um that that's not necessarily that's actually evolving identity that that's creating new forms of gender expression which is actually something that nikola tesla talked about all the time that there would have to be this new form of gender expression that exists as what he referred to as the worker bee of the hive mind that is totally and utterly driven by purpose for being as individual expression for source versus how we currently exist, which is to procreate, basically. Mm -hmm. That procreation would no longer become a purposeful fulfillment for the expression of source, but that there would have to be a new form of gender that would be succinct with that, basically. Did he really talk about that? Because I have just a thought. <laughs> no, no, no. And because... again, that, that's why I, I don't want to because, again, mind you, I was my awakening has been recent and I don't want to portray the wrong message to anybody. You know what I mean? And not to be I'm not homophobic or anything like that. I'm just I was raised so long in a right, Christian household. So I have these ideas still within me subconsciously, if you will. That no matter how much you try and fight it and try and, and change it, like sometimes when I'm talking about some heretical shit, I'm like, man, God hates me. You know what I mean? Like whoever that may be, I always have that in the back of my mind, but it's from all these years since I was fucking born. Right. That that just again, these these years of just being indoctrinated and uh, I don't mean to come off as any way. I was just uh, oh, you don't. trying to portray a message, if you will. You know what I mean? Where they're no, trying I've, to take I've away. thought about this a lot because I actually did a podcast with a friend of mine who um, purely identifies just as name. Doesn't care about what gender you refer to, to this person as, but that they don't, they have never existed in a space where they relegated their consciousness to the acceptance of the biological form, basically. Um, that, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of at that place too, where I have plenty of other uh, individuations of sentience that can exist and vessel through me and that I'm not going to let my biological form keep me from expressing a highly masculine individuation of source self through physical self because of a cognitive dissonance to that being um, like wrong or incorrect for me. I think there's also this uh, this huge argument that's occurring between the concept of spiritual gender and biological gender that I think almost everyone accepts that of course there is a biological form in which we inhabit 
but that the precursory and more important thing is the spiritual construct of what you feel to be um, truth for you so so that you can shape new things. Like, it's actually, if you think about it, pretty boring if we only ever have these two forms of gender in perpetuity forever and always. That doesn't give creation many new opportunities to experience something new, which is realistically all it wants to do is experience every new unique um, format that it can express and perceive uh, information through, basically. Yeah, and that's an interesting take on it. You do make a lot of sense where, where, you know, I talk about that, where we create our own reality. So that's what it's all about. Right. And, and I respect anybody for anything and I don't judge anyone for that's why I think race and all this stuff is all bullshit. It's all just for division and for, again, for the the will to power. Right. Where it's all about power at the end of the day. And anything else sprinkled into that is for just embellishment. But yeah, 100 percent. I never have had a conversation with anyone about that and you did bring some new perspective to me i'm i'm gonna share um the contact information for my friend mox with you because i think you could have a really wonderful conversation with mox about this sort of um concept mox grew up in a highly highly um indoctrinated evangelical christian uh household basically and spent most of life uh, being told you're not allowed to be you, um, which of course is just an expression of the fear of control structure that basically because you are different and I don't understand you, you therefore can't exist because my ego can't affirm itself within an expression that seems totally out outside of my uh, understanding, basically. The fear of the unknown, how H.P. Lovecraft said, right? The oldest and strongest kind of emotion is fear and fear of the unknown right paraphrasing it and again people i think are scared of or not you know fearful of things that they don't understand so they just take it and that's what it was all about back then right if they didn't understand it oh you're a witch you know you you burn them at the stake you know silence them get rid of them because again any thought that was against if them if i'm a witch then god's a witch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna burn god at the stake yeah i already did a thousand times which, by the way, even that, uh, I was thinking about that the other day. That is one of the worst genocides that has ever happened throughout human history. The Druids, they and eliminated is, them. Well, and, and also just the consecration of women. Like, so, for example, uh, just to speak to the Druid thing, I have Irish, um, native Irish lineage. I no longer celebrate, celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because... The whole point of St. Patrick's Day was that, which, by the way, I don't know if you've ever researched St. Patrick. I'm going to do a live with a friend of mine about him because, man, what a fascinating person. Um, it's like I can see how you got to where you were because of all the shitty stuff that happened in your life, but it still doesn't excuse what you did. <laughs> um, but, yeah, like that a lot of people don't understand that the, it's a it's a symbol. It's basically a symbolic celebration of the reformation coming through ireland and successfully genociding the snake um an entire group of people mm. which was the druids the snake was a symbol of of wisdom for them interestingly enough also there's been uh proof or evidence to the fact uh etymologically that the word druid actually was a phonetic adaptation over time and space and geography from the word jew and that Jew was also a word that phonetically was changed or altered through space that came from the word jinn, um, which mm. is uh, is a root word that basically just means spirit. Yeah. Um, 
you know, same thing too with the word demon. Um, originally, it came from the word daemon, which actually just meant divine being. It oh, had no yeah. dualistic context uh, either way. Or even like I was studying a couple uh, root words in Sanskrit the other day. Uh, the word Devi, D-E-V-I, which is a huge etymological root of the word devil for us as Western um, Christian society, is actually a word that just meant the uh, archetypal feminine of the divine uh, creation. So there was Deva, D-E-V-A, which was the masculine, and then there was Devi, D-E-V-I, which was the feminine. Um, but it's fascinating to me that that became, uh, you know, basically the word devil. <laughs> yeah, and like and maybe diva is another one of those type of things where you're like, oh, you're such a diva. It's like, well, maybe it's that feminine energy that's coming in and, and you know, taking over, right? Because like people are real sassy, right? <laughs> so, so it's uh, like uh, another one that's interesting. We talked about the word ram earlier. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of symbology attached to the ram as far as fertility and the womb and it looking, you know, that it looked like the fallopian tubes for a reason. Um, it's fascinating that we named this thing the ram drive in a computer and that it basically is archetypally the same as the subconscious, again, the, uh, the feminine, but or really more so the androgyny of it. Like, I, I won't even call it feminine. I would say that there's an equal balance of the masculine and feminine at play. Um, uh, like working together simultaneously, succinctly versus uh, individual expression of it sometimes. But that the word ram is literally built up of the words raw and ma. Yeah. Raw is the etymolo etymological root of the word rationality. Ma is the etymolo etymological root of the word magic. Again, we get this archetypal uh, masculine expression and archetypal feminine expression truly as just energy. Um, as expressions, as emanations versus what we conceive them as uh, in the 3D as just pure biological formats that we exist in. Mark? Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys are just off to the races. I'm glad. No. I, <laughs> this is an awesome conversation. It's really just like off the, like, off the cuff. Like Mara was messaging me and I'm like, Juan, get in here, let's talk. And then she jumped in and now we're doing a full-fledged podcast. I love it. <laughs> so um, when you talked about St. Patrick, it was so interesting because I've been digging through this really interesting author's work. His name is Michael Hoffman. And it's kind of, a, he's got like his finger on the pulse of this big vast grand conspiracy from a pretty dark angle, but here's what he says about St. Patrick that kind of fits into what you're saying. Uh, okay, so the assumption is that Christianity simply deceived and coerced the hardy pre-Christian Europeans into the fold, but early Christians like St. Patrick were accepted because they rid the pagan people of what Mitchell terms the final excesses of a degenerate priesthood whose altars demanded even more sacrificial blood before they could evoke response from the earth energies. So again, a very dark perspective on it, but what are your thoughts on that? Cause he basically says that like St. Patrick killing the serpent was really just like ending this practice of, of sacrifice, right? Like, Paganism. Yep. Yeah. That's kind of the, the cover story, but in a really conspiratorial sense, I mean, 
kind of makes sense. They didn't, they never stopped doing the sacrifices. I mean, they, they just happened. So there actually isn't a lot of hard evidence to that fact, aside from narratives given by priests who were present in, during that time in Ireland. Um, so like, it's kind of similar to how there were a lot of tribalistic societies that were labeled as cannibalistic, but there's actually never been any proof given to that. It was just something that was written by someone who came and visited the right. society. Um, so the thing I would say to that is, one, I don't think it was as, uh, I, I, I have yet to find any evidence to the concept of true sacrifice in the sense of how it was given of like, oh, they're taking people and like burning them at the stake against their will for the gods. Um, there really hasn't been much hard physical evidence to that effect. And most of the narratives about that having taken place come from these Christian reformers who came into Ireland with the intent of that. That's why they were there. The intent was to make everyone Christian. Now, the thing I would say is that ironically, the pagans were actually more rooted in the, the genuine root and core of Christianity that was more Gnostic in nature versus the orthodoxy, which wants everyone to believe the exact same thing in the exact same way, because that is easier to create a, like a survivalistic society with. So I understand the narrative, but that to me at this point, it's just become a reformation narrative, just like it was to label someone a witch. Um, you know, it was very easy to with you on that i i kind of i should have read further along because really what kind of connected it and i was kind of trying to get the two cents from you guys on this point because yeah i agree with you on that i i don't agree with you know the idea that pagans were bad and they should have been christianized or anything like that but what was interesting was that they're kind of pointing out that like these stone monuments are kind of like a sword in mother earth bleeding her energy out into you know where we are the ether, and, yeah. yeah that's kind of and it sounds like they were putting a stop to that because it wasn't yielding any more results <laughs> it got remembered as like oh like they're killing people they're sacrificing people when in actuality, it was more like uh, like a sort of geomantic crime, I guess. Like well, and <laughs> so so if you so the thing I would say to that too is it's very interesting how people perceive certain practices from other societies and assign that value to those people versus looking at it from the sense of understanding that they fear that because that's how they would use it. And so, like, that's where fear is born from in most of those situations where they're walking into that and going, well, this is the, the perception I have of how this is being used versus having an actual conversation about how it's being used, I think is the other thing, too. Um, but that it's also looking at it from the sense that that orthodox form of Christianity, again, is very ego driven. It's, it's very much, um, and, and of course, the irony being that it constantly is actually giving the narrative of martyrdom and, and self-sacrifice to its followers as being an important part of uh, your suffering process here on earth. So like, that's kind of ironic too. But that, you know, the pagans were people that 
live more so in that philosophical mindset that this is just a a suit for this is just the flute for spirit to express itself my suit and your suit are just that um that you know it's not some it like they viewed the body in a very different way i think than orthodox christianity did and they viewed it as a temple for source self um to express itself through in any form versus just being that one um that one expression of individuation that's replicating an existing uh belief system or model to others hopefully that kind of makes sense um but i've i've done a lot of research on this because of connections to i don't know if either of you have have read about the uh tuatha de danon and uh, the shining people that came to ireland um, which a lot of people have equated to some of the, like a lot of the original 12 tribes were actually seafaring people. And so it's very likely that the Irish, the Celts, the Gauls were all people that originally came from one of the 12 original tribes. They were just one of the seafaring tribes that mm. ended up um, moving and, and like going to other places, basically. It's very similar to, um, there was a group of Native Americans in i think minnesota that had light hair like red and blonde haired people with light eyes and they for a long time didn't understand this because when we as european christians orthodox christians came we didn't assimilate well with their society it was so different for us we couldn't understand it whereas if the celts or the druids or the gauls or the vikings had come to the u.s they would have just immediately assimilated with that tribalistic mindset or society because they had an existing belief system or structure that was very, very similar to the Native Americans. So the irony is that it's always been the Orthodox that's come in and been the thing that um, doesn't see the order. It only sees chaos and wants to force more order, whereas everyone else that they saw as disorderous was actually just perceiving and existing in the perfection of the order that is the totality of creation through nature, through spirit, through um, individual forms. Yeah. Two, two things to add on to all that. Uh, this is something that I talk about constantly where, or with Christianization, and again, not attacking anyone's religions or beliefs, but it's it, now it's about a brokered experience, right? Where you achieve divinity through us. That's why they took out the Gnostics. Right. It's separate. and Yes, yes, right? Lo the logos for the Stoics was a very impersonal experience. The logos for the Christians is a very personal experience. That is God to them. Now, there's a reason why the scripture says be as wise as the serpents, right? And talking about them eliminating the serpents when there is, how you said, a, a other narrative, right? History, his story. So to the victor, the spoils, when something goes against the mainstream narrative, that being the church at the time, of course, you're going to get fucking wiped out because they don't want people to, again, it's all about thinking for yourself, will to power. At the end of the day, it's about power and having control over other people right so if you're able to eliminate everybody else who could potentially raise somebody else's consciousness to an, a higher level that's not going to help your cause if, if you're trying to suppress that in the people to begin with so yeah that, that's very true what you're saying about all this stuff where i i believe again that's what i was trying to say earlier where they're trying to suppress that humanistic movement the humanism movement and suppress people and just have them be how nikola tesla said the, these worker bees he he also talked about how he was an automata right where he was this robot and the only thing that deferred him from a robot was that he had senses and they could perceive things and that's what Rene descartes was about too about 
I think therefore I am because we couldn't even trust our senses to begin with. So again, just it's a very very interesting and and yeah. Well, we're like, we're taught to not trust our senses, but actually yes. they're the thing that we should trust above all else, all else mostly. They're the thing that teaches us the most about the uh, intuitive process and helps us kind of create that cognitive architecture map between the subconscious and the conscious. Is that why you think that they that they antagonize people with mental health issues like the schizophrenic people? Oh, they're just crazy, but maybe their brains are just wired up in a different way where they're more perceptive to certain things. Is that you think that's part of the narrative narrative as well? Like, oh, you're just crazy. Well, I'm seeing. I don't these think things, it's you know? necessarily narrative. I think it's been a part of the process of evolution of like if we have ego, then creation must have also had an ego, which I think from the Gnostic perspective basically is what they refer to as the demiurge, that mm -hmm. the demiurge is just the ego of God um, or the ego individuation of God and that we have to transcend it or get it to like transcend it within self so that the greater archon that is the demiurge also transcends, but that we have to do it at a collective, like that we have the power at a collective conscious level as individuations to all make that choice point internally and that that overrides and overpowers that sort of uh, archon or archetypal expression of what they refer to as creator or um, I, I think they uh, assigned it the same value as Elohim from the, mm -hmm. the Judeo-Christian yeah. um, text but that yes basically you know we're at a point where we're all making the inward journey to integrate ego back into self so that once we do it at the collective conscious level it will also do it at the creative process level and this ego individuation of creation that has been very controlling right um and there's all sorts of correlations to that with tarot and with zodiac and stuff like we're leaving the capricornic era and moving into the aquarian era the capricornic era literally is the archetype of the devil or um if you look at what the sort of soul contract uh, processes are for someone who is born into um, the sign of Capricorn is that they tend to be people who are highly obsessed with control, have a lot of insecurity about their environment. Uh, they tend to have OCD patterns. Um, you know, again, all coming back to this sort of concept of I have to micromanage everything and that that's the era zodiacally that we've been living in as a collective and now we are moving into the star goddess era or the Aquarius era, the original, like sort of returning back to that source self that was oh. um, a stellar divine being that wasn't so obsessed with um, control and materia and affirmation. And um, I think therefore I, th <laughs> I think therefore I am right is this is the extension that I would make to that, that our ego individuations have made. Um, but that that that's basically the deal is that we had to have we had to as creation as an as an entire eternal one thing being experience what it feels like to be controlled so that we can learn from it um and that you know for us what is it two thousand three thousand years feels like a long ass time because we only live for 80 of them but for the one eternal thing it really isn't that long it's just a part of the uh the learning system or the learning process that we're now moving out from what do you have to say about the taurus i'm a taurus do you have anything to say about that i want to know like i'm not into astrology but i want to know what i'm a libra you're a libra <laughs> <laughs>
So uh, Libra has a lot to do with balance. Um, so the thing I would say is there are like lots of websites that you can go to that will basically give you like your birth chart. Here's the backward notion in which most people approach astrology. So it's actually good that you haven't spent like a crazy amount of time on it, um, which is that we tend to then ego identify with that astrological sign and use it as an excuse for behaviors we were intended to transcend. Such a Sagittarius, right? you know, I just, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, it, exactly. Like I, even though I know that this for my soul self and my evolutionary process is not a habit or behavior that behooves me, that it is technically self-harming in nature, I am going to choose to use my um, zodiacal correlation as an excuse to continue to the, exist in this less healthy, less evolved yeah. format. Be a shitty human um, being. It doesn't mean that your astrology sign. It's just you being a shitty human being, you know, you have to own up to right. it. And, and that also there's this process of transcendence we have to get to where, you know, again, if the if the entire cosmos is also outside of us, then it thereby must also be within us. That means that every archetype must exist within us. And so by accepting just one zodiacal sign as your archetype and living and breathing only that archetypal behavior instead of making space for all of the other archetypes to express themselves through and within you that that is like a sticking point uh with astrology too that we have a tendency to say well this is like again i i actually think that there's this problem where we've become obsessed with identification from an ego standpoint where we have to have all of these labels to say what we are and it's actually better for us to be moving back to a less ego-individuated sense where we are less likely to say, this is what I am in perpetuity, um, because it does nothing but stifle spirit. It blocks it. It basically boxes you into something instead of allowing you the space to uh, color outside the lines. Yeah. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. And again, it's right. They're trying to erase that individual kind of right like be your own type of thing no you can't do that you gotta adhere by the laws and by the doctrines taught to you by your family at the end of the day and and when you stray away from that you're that the ugly duckling right you're the one that's going to be casted out and exiled because no you're not allowed to be that you have to be like one of us <laughs> well congratulations on uh existing in the full archetype of the abrasive um you know, thing in those you individuations life that they were intended to learn from and either choose love or not choose love with. Like that's usually the core choice point in all of this is to either choose to love and have compassion and acceptance for someone or to uh, identify or define them as adversarial to you, basically. It's the spear of destiny, right? Depending on which hands you use it, it can either cause harm or can heal. So at the end of the day, whatever you choose to do with this knowledge you can either cause cause destruction and I can use that same knowledge to heal somebody else and bring awareness to them. And again, that's why it's, that's right. why I said it's Dungeons and Dragons all over again. We, are you going to be good? Are you going to be bad, bro? Which is it going to be, you know, like, <laughs> well, so I think also part of our reality is to accept that, uh, you know, as a projection reflection, right. Every enemy you face in experience, whether it's in a game or in a game <laughs> is, is you right? right and that the only reason that the avatar the adversary is born is out of the ego individuation's need to feel like a hero 
Mm-hmm. And so you get to this point where you realize, okay, well, if I have to, if I have to act like a hero to feel good about myself, that means I also have to accept that that means that I am conceiving uh, enemies. I am boring or bearing enemies into the world out of my own ego's necessity to feel like a hero, to be able to take something down and the, like the, uh, you know, feeling that comes from that, basically. Again, not a bad thing, but I think that that's something that we're supposed to transcend from duality, that we can perceive the reflection um, for the truth of what it is, which is just the other end of the spectrum of us, of experience, versus something we have to destroy or take down or overcome, basically. The only thing we have to overcome in that situation is our perception that it is um, separate and uh, worse or better than us. Uh, We have a tendency to do that too. We almost never define someone as an equal um, as an autonomic process. We tend, you know, they say comparison is the thief of joy. We have a really ego individuated autonomic process where every person in front of us is almost never defined as an equal even though at an inherent level we understand that that is the truth of of all reality is that everything is equal it has its expression for a reason but that as ego individuations we are constantly comparing and contrasting and defining something as above or below us um, because that's kind of how we've been programmed to function uh, in life, and again, in hierarchical um, society. We've also highly commodified the identity. So it's like every every time, it's almost like you're adding a price tag to yourself uh, every time you a- attach this uh, definition or identity to your ego because that's how the world has described ego to us, that every time you define it, you're either making it more valuable or less valuable instead of it just being expression. Yeah, that's why, again, the the story of this warrior, right, slaying the dragon, the sword symbolizes the monad and the dragon symbolizes that dark self. And like you said, and all your that's amazing. And all your adversaries, you're just facing yourself at the end of the day, right? The upper eons, the watery light. Why kill the thing that gave you magic in the first place? Gosh. Touche. Well, I'm friends with my dragon and I didn't kill it. <laughs> I love it. I got a jet. Um, it's been fun. Is it cool yeah. if I use this, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Send I love this. Mind. This is an awesome conversation. I would love to just do this with you guys uh, whenever Send me your you info. feel like it, honestly. Mark, send me your info so we can chop it up. And Yeah, we'll do. And I'll, um, Juan, I'll send, well, I'll send it to both of you, but uh, I'll send you the link to the Gnostic Young book because I think you would find that super interesting. Yeah. It's called Gnostic Young and the Seven Sermons to the Dead, um, where basically he, his mind was opened up to uh, beyond the veil, to the spirit, to the spirit world. Um, and, and then he vessels all sorts of things into this, uh, well, not intentionally into this book. It was actually just personal for him. Um, but he actually talks about how he has empathy for and connection to the Gnostics, but never was willing to actually identify or label himself as a Gnostic because of uh, what it would do to him societally. Just got it right here on Scribed. So I added it to my favorites nice. and I'll make sure to read it. Awesome. Um, there's an one that I'll tell you really quickly, which is uh, I'm sure you can get the audiobook other places too. But it's called, um, it's by Joseph Campbell. And actually, I think I can copy him. 
Oops. Uh. Did we lose her? Can you hear me, Mark? Um. Yeah, I, yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I think her uh, internet connection dipped out. <laughs> I think she's on the call. That's why. Because she's on the app. For I can't today. Uh, Nature and Vicky in an intercategorized and connect with um, what synchronicity is at a like kind of human level. You see. cut out there, but I'll have I'll have Mark send you my email so you can email me that, and I'll yeah. I have scribe. <coughs> excuse me, I have scribe, so I can just download all these books and just read them. Cool. All right. Well, I'll be in touch about nice. uh, those shows. Take it easy. Our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.